Hey everyone, I just wanted to take a quick minute to let you know that we've launched our Patreon site and that you can now become a supporter of the show. The awards in there include artist features on our website and shoutouts on the show, as well as open invitations to join fellow patrons in our roundtable discussion episodes. So if you think you might be interested, please take a look at the link in the description or just go to patreon.com slash at percussion. So slash A-T percussion. Okay, thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. It is August 16th, 2020. This is your episode 248 of At Percussion. This is being released on September 10th, 2020. Uh, my name is Ben Charles. With me, as always, are Carly Vina. Hey, everyone. Ksenia Kimunovich. Hey, Ben. Hey, Ksenia. And Casey Cangelosi. Hey, everybody. And Casey, I think you have a little shout out to do real quick before we get started here. Yep, we have a new uh, premium level patron. He's a longtime listener and been a friend of the show. You've probably heard his name. Jeez, a lot, many, many times on the show, just submitting good questions. I actually has another question today. But uh, yeah, Jade Hales, thanks so much for, for joining the team. And you're going to be getting tenure. He's of the tenure, get your tenure here status. So we'll see more Jade a little later. Tenure is cheap, people. Get it. It's only $9. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's thanks a good so much, deal. Uh, thanks so much, Jade, for helping support us. And Carly, I think you had some what happened today in history items for us. Yeah, you know, September 10th was a pretty good day in music history for um, fans of the 90s, 90s kids like, like us. So um, in 1990, actually, September 10th was the first episode of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air debuting on NBC. Um, so yeah, that's pretty cool. And you know, I read about it and I, I was surprised to read that there were only six seasons of this show because it just seems like it went on forever and they're still playing reruns constantly. Right. So yeah, it was surprising. And you know, I don't know how you guys felt about Fresh Prince of Bel-Air when you were younger, but I can tell you, this is a true story that I sent fan mail to Will Smith. No. Like, maybe an eight or nine year old because <laughs> like, Dear Will Smith, I think your show is so great. You're so funny. Um, and I, I have that specific memory. I never heard back, but I'm sure that he cherished that letter. Um, he, he, he kept it for sure. It's framed above his bed, yeah. No he, is really, he is really talented and like super, super hardworking. Yeah. I'm sure. He's I mean, you, you look like, think about his career. He's done so much and in so many different, different directions. But that's you know, cool. Yeah, that was a. Cool. Yeah, and I was such, I was a fan. I, I remember meeting somebody's mom, and they would always blast Will Smith in their car rapping, and I'd be like, "What's up with this?" Because this woman doesn't normally listen to anything related to rap or hip hop, and she's like, "It's so clean, it's so right, it's so beautiful." I was gonna because say that is that is bad. that is like a mom's rap artist. So, <laughs> so what lovely. I'm, what I'm hearing is that Carly's gonna do the Fresh Prince rap for us right now. Yeah, come on, no, Carly. but in, in 1997, I totally would have done it. <laughs> <laughs> Here's, I didn't practice it actually. Maybe next week. Wait, um, wait, wait, wait. Come on, you can do it the opening at least, Carly. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> Can't put her on the spot. This is a story all about how my life got <laughs> turned upside down or twist turned. <laughs> 
Sorry, sorry. I come from Serbia. I had a crush on him, so I wouldn't have just written regular fan mail, but, you know. <laughs> so, guys, this is interesting. There's a possible reboot of the show in the works, um, but it's reimagining the show as a drama instead of a comedy. Um, and this is pretty recent. I found an article, like, a couple days ago it was published, so I'm not sure how I feel about that, but be interesting nobody's picked it up yet that's what the article said so well, pick it up right yeah netflix, netflix will probably pick up this podcast <laughs> if you're listening you should pick this up we're curious about it seems like they pick they'll pick up about anything <laughs> sounds like netflix is our next nine dollar patron <laughs> <laughs> they'll probably whittle it down and be like eh, maybe eight dollars <laughs> They probably wouldn't pay nine. <laughs> They'd still get tenure, though. What else happened? Anything else? Yeah, so in 1991, one year later, um, Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit was released as a single, and it was their first major label single, so that's a pretty big deal because taking all this like grunge, alternative music to the mainstream. Uh, so you all, I'm sure know this song and are familiar with this album but it's so different than the other things that were that were going on at the time like a lot of the other top 20 artists um, were people like Paula Abdul and Mariah Carey um, and then like Nirvana comes onto the scene with this song oh, yeah. so did you all ever get stuck on that beat like I remember being a kid and you know you learn doom cat doom doom cat doom cat doom doom cat and then you start doing a little variation and then you just got stuck Pedro's doing it do it Pedro do it unmute unmute Pedro but then you just got stuck on the teen spirit beat and you couldn't like figure out another syncopated snare drum hit to fit in because you're in sixth grade and you didn't know any better <laughs> well, that's still the beat. Even for kids that don't know the song, I, I don't think that's the beat you hear in like every middle school band classroom. Like they figure it out and oh yeah, it is. yeah, it's just very natural. Like it's like okay, those are the additional syncopations in the left hand you're gonna do, you know, and still keep a strong backbeat. So way to go, Dave Grohl. Dave Grohl, yeah, he's about as good as a sixth grader. No, just kidding. He's also really <laughs> lovely. But... Ben, <laughs> ben, really like graders everywhere wish they could play like him. Ben, <laughs> yeah. have you have you heard the Courtney Love murdered uh, Kurt Cobain conspiracy I, theory? I actually I read a book called Who Killed Kurt Cobain and wrote a book of report on it in like seventh grade. Wow. I, I think, what? Yeah. <laughs> I, it's it's not the worst conspiracy theory I've ever heard. So do share. Well, I I I, I don't think I can get into it now. But there's a, ne a Netflix documentary, so they probably it's probably bogus. But wow, that sounds interesting. Wow, I'm so grateful to have found out so many great things about y'all's childhoods. That's awesome. Well, <laughs> well like since like they say the amount of heroin in his body, he no single person could do that to themselves. So they think somebody did it to him. Like, there's no way you could get that much into your system of your own volition, for instance. But then there's a bunch of other very confusing, weird things. There, it might also, be true. He's also a member of that, what's it called? Like the 26 Club or 27 Club? Whatever, 27. Like 27 Club, a bunch of like famous musicians, artists, right. types that have died at the same age. Like Kurt Cobain, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin. There's like, mm -hmm. you know, there's all died at 27. Right. Well, thanks so much, Carly. 
Our guest today is actually a grad school buddy of Carly and mine, and also a very talented musician. Our guest today is Pedro Fernandez. Pedro is a member of the Indianapolis Symphony and spends his summers performing with the Chautauqua Symphony. He has also held positions with the Houston Ballet Orchestra and Cincinnati Symphony. He is a proud native of Panama, and he completed his studies at Sam Houston State University and University of Miami. So welcome to the podcast, Pedro. Thank you. Hi, everybody. And, uh, <laughs> Pedro, <laughs> I, I figured we could we could get started with a Facebook question uh, from our friend Maria Clevus, uh, who says, Pedro Fernandez, important question, how do you stay so handsome? <laughs> <laughs> it, it just comes naturally. <laughs> that's there's, it he can't help you folks if you're not as handsome that's it just there's this i i should just let pedro do i should let pedro tell the story but there's this wonderful story the cliff notes version is pedro went to get a haircut and the lady said his hair was too beautiful and refused to cut it uh, <laughs> <laughs> actually long and uh it was you know it, it starts curling up a lot um, yeah she refused to cut my hair i'm like well i i i'm paying you i'm giving you money and i want it gone <laughs> like no 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 i'm not gonna do it so she oh, we compromised and she cut the sides and left the top long so what if you had just butchered it and then she had no choice but to fix it <laughs> with a bunch of gum or something and just <laughs> <cut> random <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've never heard of that happening. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to, to ask you a, a, a serious question. Um, and that is that, especially given today's political climate, uh, as an international student, especially one from a Latin American country, could you share your experience with us and any challenges you faced? And I'm sure probably your perspective has changed in recent years on what your experience could be like if you were to be an international student now. So could we start there? I, I came from my undergrad. I came to the to the United States for my undergrad, and I think I was a little naive and a little um, um, I wasn't paying as much attention to these um, things about um, racism, political correctness, uh, discrimination. Uh, I think mostly I, I've been giving a lot of thought, obviously. And uh, I, you know, a, a number of people mentioned how it's important to have somebody that looks like you as a role model. And uh, coming from Panama, where most people do look like me in some capacity, I didn't have that, you know, a problem, really. I, my first percussion teacher was a black man. Then later, the, 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 my teacher at the National Conservatory was a black man, great musicians. Uh, they have both passed away. I cherish them. They they taught me a lot, and they you know that's it. because of them is that I'm here in the National Symphony of Panama. You're not having that conversation about uh, well, we don't have enough white people in the orchestra. And something else that I have thought is uh, with the different orchestras I have performed with or or been a member of, there is an element that every music director brings to the plate. The Indianapolis Symphony currently has a Polish uh, conductor, Krzysztof Urbanski. So we have played a lot of Polish music. A lot of Pinterecki, a lot of uh, Weinberg we played recently. I didn't know about that composer. Um, 
you know, it escapes my mind right now, but we have done a fair amount of Polish music, which obviously is because that's what the music director knows. And, uh, or, I mean, that's, that's part of his background. And in other orchestras, that is uh, the same is true. People will bring the background that they have grown up with, will bring the things that they know, the things that they're proud of. I don't know. I mean, you, you, you perhaps hear, I don't know if the Nashville Symphony perhaps plays some music by Costa Rican composers because they have a Costa Rican conductor. I'm sure that, well, I know that Los Angeles, they do a lot of Latin American music. I'm sure that San Diego is heading in that direction, but San Diego, for example, for a long time had a, you know, I, I'm not sure where the conductor is from, Jaja Ling, I, I, I believe was his name before the current guy, Rafael Pagliari. But what I do know is that I auditioned for that orchestra once and they had a fair amount of music from Asia in the, in the list. And it's because they were playing a fair amount of that music and, you know, the conductor was bringing that to the plate. I have had uh, certain experiences, of course, with racism, as I as likely most uh, minorities and, and, and not only, but, you know, depending on your sexual orientation or what, whatnot. They, uh, it's a mixture of things, you know, it's uncomfortable. You feel powerless, you feel frustrated, you feel angry all at the same time you realize a lot about people too, you know, that the people that you have, that have around you, supporting you, befriending you, perhaps even if it's, a, if it's an instance in which this happens like on the spot, that I am out and something happens, you know, you may have somebody standing up for you. At the same time, it is sort of like you can get a positive out of uh, these situations, but you definitely need thick skin you can't let it face you and uh, you have to just sort of uh, be above you know any 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 sort of kind of discrimination or, or prejudice or anything just you do you hopefully that sort of answers yeah. the question yeah I, I i think it does so pedro do you do you feel that maybe because you had some of those experiences? Did it ever, like you mentioned, turning it into a positive, did you ever like turn that negativity into like, damn it world, I'm gonna show you and use it to, you know, uh, motivate yourself to, you know, be a, contribute to the success you have now? Uh, honestly, I, no, to be honest, I, I don't think that while taking auditions and all that, I, I was necessarily thinking of, I didn't have these thoughts. I just wanted to play as best as I could, as I could at the moment. That reminds me of another thing. Of course, the the whole talk in the orchestral world about screens or no screens, and how that can, you know, it it came about. I I believe originally to have a fair shot, so that women would have also a fair shot at auditions. I have participated in auditions both with screen, without a screen. I have been fortunate to win as well in both instances, with and without the screen. I don't, I don't know if I have necessarily tried to turn an instance like that into a positive in that way. I, I, it's more perhaps like in my regular life or like a lot of other people, you know, you, every, all of us encounter these kind of people that if you tell them they can't do something, they now they really want to do it. I can also 
uh, identify myself a little bit uh, to an extent uh, with that. The uh, the screen discussion is always an interesting one, and I, I think you are. Right. I think it originally started as a gender equality thing, and I think they also put carpet down because if a woman walked out wearing heels, it would be a distinctly different footstep sound. But I actually heard. Uh, oh God, probably about 10 years ago, um, Leonard Slatkin talk about blind auditions. And he said, uh, I don't I don't like them. I, I and he said, I understand why we have them. It's for our quality's sake. But he basically said, I, I like to think that we're past that. Like, I like to think that musicians can see past that and just listen to the player. And he said, it's actually important to me to see how you breathe and how you communicate when you play. Uh, so I think there there is something there. I, I think that just out of pure blind fairness to remove any question of any prejudice that might still exist in some people, I think screens are a good thing, but it was an interesting sort of counterpoint I'd never heard. We listen with our eyes, like we know that now, you know? I, I do believe that the screen takes out. I mean, obviously, we are not past that. So uh, as recent times and recent events have shown us, I mean, I lean towards the statement of keeping the screen uh, up the whole time. Yeah, I think we have a, we have a nice Facebook question from uh, from Mike Kessler, and he says, "Hey Pedro, what are your two top favorite snare drum books that you would recommend?" And also, if you feel like throwing in there, he also says marimba or vibraphone books as well. So yeah, pretty specific. And I guess you can only pick two. If you pick three, I'm editing it out, <laughs> or Ksenia's editing it out. Well, if I had to pick two, I mean, right here on my drum set, I have the Pratt 14 Modern Contest Solos. And uh, I like to, you know, go over these, they're, you know, rudimental standard. I like to also practice them as soft as I can possibly play them. If I am able to play the etudes as soft as possible, then, you know, the Orchestral excerpts seem slightly easier. Another book that uh, it's always fascinating, and I believe it's it's uh, helps you a lot with your hands is uh, Accents and Rebounds by Lauren Stone. Uh, well, you mentioned that one. Yeah, a lot of people don't do that one. It's hard, it's, but man, it's it did a lot for me too. Yeah, it's not. It's fantastic. I mean, the dexterity that you get from that book is just. Uh, on parallel to anything else that I've encountered. I always so, give I always give that to students when I think they need what I call high low control. Yeah. Like like you're playing high and then you need to get low quickly. Yeah. And this is like this is like I'm sorry I interrupted you so I, I want you to finish telling us about it. But like it, it um I've had this ongoing debate because like I've never really taught the like piston stroke come up from where you came from and i know i'm kind of a loner on that i don't think many people do that but i've just seen enough students who've been taught that enough that they just can never stay low <laughs> like they're so used to like come back up come back up to where you came from and i think that's great when you're starting to play evenly but you kind of have to abandon it pretty quick like because like, you have to keep that second grace note really low like you have to play a big note and then a, and then a tap very quickly so i just yeah I, I've, I've never put a big emphasis on that and i've seen students who they just like can't get a note to stay down like no stop pulling it back up you there's no so anyway like playing high is easy playing low is hard so i like yeah. accents and rebounds for that for that reason as far as uh, mallet books i was using the delicluse 
uh, xylophone book to practice my sight reading. I bought a xylophone a long time ago, and it came with this book by T.H. Rawlinson. Uh, just method, method for xylophone. And uh, it has some really fascinating exercise. I mean, it, it, it's sort of like the green, you know, it's sort of like the George Hamilton green book. Slightly different. I just have it there and thought it was cool to have like an old book. I don't even know what year it is from, but you know, it's, 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 it's good. It's fun to, to work on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right on, right on. Well, thanks. Hey, um, what's going on with the symphony right now? Did I see in your Facebook uh, post that it is, um, that you guys are, your season's canceled? Uh, the indoor season is what, is the way they are calling it. The, the concerts that we had scheduled with the artists and get, guest conductors and all that, it, it just, that won't happen as planned. But uh, the orchestra committee is working together with the uh, management to come up with a, a plan, and we just don't know yet. So we're all just waiting and see what uh, kind of agreement, what kind of plan we are presented in the next, hopefully in the next week. Do you know, like, I know Matt Strauss has been posting stuff the Houston Symphony's been doing with, like, web stream concerts, and they're actually, it's, it's, kind of i think good in a way like they're actually charging for these concerts it's not just like hey watch our free facebook stream tonight click that donate button if you like are there, have there been any talks of that sort of thing or i honestly don't know um uh, if they have been talking about that i mean it's the houston symphony is fortunate to have the capability in their hall and they had invested in in, in the equipment to make that possible not every orchestra uh, has that capacity and has the, the network and all that to, to make that happen. So I know actually in Indianapolis, we have live stream concerts before. So that might be a possibility, which then entails a whole protocol for COVID, you know, testing and, and having people come in at a specific time and having a designated area, depending, depending on the piece that you're playing, you know, what happens if one member of one ensemble happens to test positive do you scratch the whole piece, find somebody else in the spot because, you know, it's, it's chamber music. So the rehearsal process is different, as we all know. It's a lot of questions. And uh, Houston has been at the forefront of this. And, and uh, it's it's been amazing to see what they've been doing. And uh, certainly an example for other orchestras in, in, in this part of the world in terms of the possibilities and how to be creative in this time. We really hope that uh, you get to go back on stage again because... Um, I did not have the chance to see you play with an orchestra. I had a chance to see you uh, smash it at PASIC and demonstrate things with a blindfold on and still played perfectly. So I admire you so much, I mean, from all of that that I witnessed. Wait, but... wait, for those of us that weren't there, what's that about? So basically, Pedro went out as handsome as he is, and then they put a blindfold on him, and then they said, okay, we're going to play the entire um, West Side Story just with your left hand, and he did it. <laughs> it's a myth. The man's a myth and a legend. Part of West Side Story. <laughs> All of it. <laughs> and twice as fast. No, just kidding. But he had a, you played with Matt Strauss, right? Yeah, I, I yeah, had a. Master Close. Strauss, in fact, uh, yeah, he was doing a, a symbol clinic and I participated a little bit in that to demonstrate a few things. And I had a, a vibraphone lab uh, where the focus, well, it, yes, we did play West Side Story, 
but the focus was on on newer excerpts that are appearing more and more in in, in the in the you know orchestral world, such as uh, the Adams uh, City Noir, the uh, John Williams uh, Escapades uh, from Catch Me If You Can. That was what we were demonstrating at that lab. That you know the newer vibraphone uh, literature that appears in orchestral uh, lists. But you really had to play blindfolded. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he's just so good. He could have played it blindfolded yeah, and with a left hand only. That's gonna be the next YouTube series. Yeah, make Actually, some videos playing blindfolded. I was just gonna say real quick that I remember when I auditioned at Miami, the the practice building is called Foster, and I remember very distinctly that the the night that the night before I auditioned, I walked over to school to like look around and you know kind of get my bearings, and I heard someone playing Porgy and Bess in the practice room and I walked by and it was Pedro and I was like that guy's nailing it I want to go to this school so (laughs) (laughs) recruiting even when he doesn't know that he's doing it it's sort of a ridiculous thing but when I was a kid I played piano and I remember struggling with some pieces of music and I was just like how do you even get good at things and my dad who's not a musician he's like well you should be able to play it with your eyes closed so that's how I practiced. I sort of, you know, I considered a piece learned when I was able to play it with my eyes closed. And that doesn't really apply to, to mallets as easily. It is a thing that Matt Strauss talks about is like, can you visualize at least, you know, right. uh, what, you're, what you're memorizing with your eyes closed. But back to Pedro, because this is a really important quote that we share around the percussion community all the time, which is how your mother once said, what are you even practicing? Yeah, what are you doing? What are you what are you doing when you're practicing? And that's actually exactly exactly the question. Um why I mean you've won so many auditions and you're such a fabulous player. Um can you objectively like remove yourself from yourself and tell us what is it that you objectively do differently, maybe than other people, you know? How is it that you practice? I don't, I can't speak for other people. Obviously, I, you know, it's not like I'm watching other people and, and how they go about their practicing. So I don't know what I would do differently. I, I can tell you what I do. And I, I you know, I, I always have a plan in place with uh, certain specific goals in mind. It's goal oriented, short term goals that I need to reach by a specific, uh, before a specific, let's say, week or days uh, before uh, uh, an audition or a, or a performance. And uh, I, uh, yeah, once, basically, you know, I, I have to keep everything timed. I mean, it's so, so much music you have to learn for these auditions. I have to keep a timer and, and stay true. If I don't get to something, well, too bad. I have other things to get to, uh, but then, the next day I need to, I, I know that I, my plan for that day, you know, I have a specific plan, specific short-term goals, but the plan is flexible if I, especially, especially in the case that I, in the event that I don't get to something as much or I don't play something as good as I want it to. Um, but there's, you know, the, the things we all do, record ourselves. I try to listen diligently. I think mostly I listen after I'm done practicing. That evening I just sit down listen to everything I did, really analyze it. Otherwise, I think I just stayed for too long trying to fix the things that I'm playing instead of moving on to the next thing. So that's, yeah, that's that's what I try to do. 
and play for other people, play not only for other percussionists, but for a lot of other instrumentalists, because in the end, when you're in a committee, mostly, uh, I mean, it, it all depends on the orchestra, but usually the committee is going to be uh, formed by non-percussionists. I mean, yes, there are going to be percussions, but if it's seven people, I mean, there's not seven, six, five percussions. There's, you know, two, if you're auditioning for one position, there's two other percussionists and a timpanist. It's three people. Most of the committee is non-percussionists, and I want them to feel comfortable, absolutely comfortable with what they're hearing. I want to know how they think. I want to know how they hear things, the way they phrase things, the way they play grace notes, which is different than the way we as percussionists might play grace notes, uh, just, you know, as an example. That's sort of my process, uh, you know, a lot of practicing, a lot of time, you know, doing from the fundamentals to the specific exercises towards a specific excerpt. Well, once again, short-term goals, recording, listening, playing for people, and then you just have to go and, and, and execute. It's funny how the, the question of like, how do you practice? I think everyone's always expecting like an exciting answer. And it's like, it's really not. <laughs> but but no, I, I just wanted to, to share a, a little uh, anecdote here. And that's like, one thing that's unique about percussion is the actual physical technique to play our instruments is so varied. Uh, I'm just talking about the physical motions you play on tambourine versus timpani versus marimba versus triangle versus congas. Like it's it's so different compared to like, yeah, violinist has a few different like bowings to work out or something like that. But it's I don't think there's nearly the diversity. And watching Pedro practice, he's so incredibly passionate about this stuff. And I just remember there was one time I walked in that that I don't even remember what the room number was. The little room that was by Svet's old office. And Pedro was sitting there watching soccer uh, and practicing triangle and like just some like obscure triangle technique. And like he would just sit there and do it for like 45 minutes on end watching like his his soccer game. And I was like, wow, that, that's so cool. And it makes so much sense. Like there, there's not enough time in the day to watch soccer and practice triangle and <laughs> other stuff. So like, you know, you multitask and it's a. Uh, I, I, I don't know if this is true, but like the legend is that like Franz Liszt would warm up playing his scales every morning while he read the newspaper. So, yeah, that was a little little thing I kind of stole from Pedro a little bit. It's like watch some TV, practice your boring technique stuff. Like obviously when you do your daily loops, you got to turn it off. But I still I still keep the soccer on sometimes, either my laptop or my TV or whatever. And, and it's sort of having in the background. Do you so ever keep... like, like put like the soccer match like in an AirPod, like during a symphony concert when you're counting rest? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> Try it sometime. Carly, I think you had something. <laughs> I Well, I wish that would work for me. I've tried, like, I'm doing stick control all the time, and and I've tried, like, oh, let me listen to a podcast, or just put, it doesn't work. Like, I'm like, I stare out the window. That's been my thing during quarantine, is I have my pad at the window, and I watch, like, cars go by, and maybe some kids <laughs> playing, that's it. Um but Pedro, I wanted to ask follow up on on practicing. How has your practicing changed in the last you know five months or so? Have you been able to like get get back to basics or a lot of technique or what's what's been on your plate? Guess I really have mostly you know zeroed on 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 drum set. Been practicing a lot of drum set. It's something that I really like doing and generally don't get the chance. And in, in, in every orchestra I've played, I you know there's already a fabulous percussionist that plays the killer drum set. I would love to play drum set part, but that person is better. 
you know, I just wanted to get my level up there and, and, and go back to these fundamentals of doing a lot of uh, chart reading, learning about the spacing between the nodes and where to place things, especially when you're playing slow. You know, just seeing how I can apply rudiments creatively around the set. Yeah, that's. I, I guess that's really what I've been doing, trying to get my right hand to play that uh, uh, an actually decent up-tempo jazz as well. So that has been a lot of my practicing these days. Obviously, have kept some fundamentals on, on mallet. Xylophone is usually what I uh, use for that. I guess, you know, going back to a little bit, I guess, to what Ksenia asked about my practicing, there was a time when the months that I would practice all my fundamentals in glockenspiel because it's a different instrument and you, you, you know, it sounds different, you approach it differently. And I want to sound as best as I can in that instrument. It might be minimal. People might not even realize why, but can separate you from somebody else. Yeah, but mostly I do it on my xylophone. Uh, I have, since I've been listening to a lot of jazz, I, you know, transcribed a little bit on vibes as well. And uh, I guess that has been, you know, for every now and then I grab the tambourine, practice my soft rolls, make sure that my soft rolls and tambourine are still there, grab my crash cymbals and uh, make sure my soft crashes are in place. Uh, so, you know, yeah, like you said, fundamentals, uh, making sure things are where they're supposed to be, even if, you know, even if we're not performing at the time, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's uh, performing for those of, us, of those of us who do it all the time and for anybody. It's something that makes us proud, something that, uh, you know, keeps you true. You want to do it as, at the highest level you can. It's important, obviously, to, to keep this, these things fresh. Absolutely. Well, it's cool. I love hearing about the things that people normally don't have as much time to do, like for you playing drum set during the regular symphony season, like might not happen so much. So it's awesome. It's good to dig into those things. What music do you jam out to, Pedro? Like, what do you do when you're not perfecting your perfect crashes? <laughs> uh, well, since I've been practicing a lot of my chart reading, I've been listening to a lot of big band music, a lot of Count Basie, that yes. album, yeah, that album Straight Ahead is fabulous. I've been listening to some Woody Herman, let me see, the Giant Steps, which uh, Ben might be familiar with the, with the uh, drummer in that album, it's so... Uh, <laughs> It's another fabulous uh, album. So, but otherwise, I mean, let me see. And Latin jazz, this band, Havana de Primera, absolutely fantastic. Are they better than Billie Eilish? Than who? <laughs> he doesn't even recognize it. Damn it. Okay, well, you guys keep up with the kids. <laughs> Uh, then what, I'm, I'm just trying to see right here what else I've been listening to lately. Well, I got into Steely Dan a little bit recently, so I've been listening to some of that. Mostly, I guess, Latin jazz or Latin, Afro-Latin influenced music. Well, Ksenia, I think you had a topic you were going to share with us today, something that you saw on social media. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Um, I saw this post float around in several different groups and um, it is very much related to what we do as percussionists. 
Um, the post was originally, I think, targeted more towards educators um, in sort of middle schools who use chopsticks um, instead of drumsticks um, for whatever reason, whether it's, you know, things being too loud or not being able to afford uh, sets of drumsticks for everybody. But I will read the post um, and then we'll have a little conversation about it. Um, this post was written by Alice Tsoi, posted at the beginning of July. Here's what Alice said. She said, on the current debate in music education about using chopsticks in the music classroom happening nationwide, I have so many feelings, but I will aim to be brief and direct. The fact that the use of chopsticks is a debatable concept in terms of music education is deplorable. Didn't know this before, and now you know? Great. Leave it there, learn, and drop the chopsticks for music making. Demand to know more from your Asian friends, colleagues, and students? No. Do not ask them and do the research yourself. We cannot demand more labor from black indigenous people of color, period. As mentioned in last night's chat, I don't know what she's referring to there, um, Google is free, very free. Still want to say that chopsticks are cost efficient? I didn't realize that my culture is economically friendly. Oh wait, because it isn't. Recognize that Asianness and Asian people or Asian American and Pacific Islander identifying folks are not a monolith. I guess that's great, but don't pit us against each other. The argument that some might not find this behavior to be offensive means that the ones who may find it offensive are worth the sacrifice, that they, who they are, and their culture does not matter. Want to argue that using the cheap plastic chopsticks you get from takeout shops instead of any fancy ones? Do you mean the cheap-to-you chopsticks? If it is cheap to you, then please feel free to inform your local takeout shop that you will be using the money they spent on purchasing these chopsticks for you, the consumer, as a tool in your music classroom. I can only imagine the looks on their faces they will have on appropriating chopsticks for what is perceived to be the most convenient means of procuring sound-making objects for your classroom. Asian, Asian American, kids are in your classroom, how dare you? I want to just leave it there. I was that Asian kid in someone's classroom earlier in my life. How can I explain to my mom at the dinner table that I, while picking up my rice with my chopsticks, used chopsticks in school today to make quote unquote music? Asian, Asian American, kids are not in your classroom? This is even more offensive. How dare you consider using chopsticks and normalizing this misuse of chopsticks and say to your kids that this is okay. The same kids who are continuing to form, reform, analyze, and make decisions based on what they see, experience, and hear. You are harming their understanding of Asian culture, Asianness, and so much more that I simply cannot put into English. I want to end by expressing just truly how infuriating it is to see white people and or non-Asian people arguing and discussing this, that my culture, my word, my understanding of who I am is up for debate. This is in your face reminder that this work that music educators are preparing to do in the fall is so much more than just discussing music materials, money, and alternatives. My culture is not an alternative, so don't appropriate who I am for your quote-unquote convenience because the harm you are creating is much louder than the supposed in-classroom sounds your drumstick substitute chopsticks could ever make. And then in the end, she says, my Venmo is at Alice Tsui. Um, as much as the message is important, so uh, is the tone. And obviously, to get the right tone, you have to read it and not have me narrate it, because I definitely interpreted some of that. This is the first time that I've heard uh, this 
discussion be brought up and it has certainly sparked a huge avalanche of comments online and uh, many, many arguments and debates. I've, I've gone down that rabbit hole and ended up piled up by comments and spent hours reading about it, um, which is good. It means it makes us think and I've read uh, about what a lot of people think on this topic. Now my question uh, goes around this virtual room. What do you think about the debate? Is this something that you have ever considered using in your classroom or in your studio? Um, do you feel like it should be um, respected? Do you think that this so, approach was good? Let's I, make oh. Pedro go first. Pedro, don't you feel like yeah. we just like walked you into like the edge of a field and we're like, <laughs> hey, dude, the end of the the end of the podcast is a hundred <laughs> steps through that minefield. Go ahead, it'll be fine. <laughs> it's not a trap. <laughs> I uh, is the first time I'm hearing about the use of, of chopsticks being uh, offensive, and uh, I have to say I'm guilty of using myself uh, chopsticks. There's a piece by Lou Harrison, beautiful piece called uh, "Very Trio," in which the second movement is for tuned rice bowls, and I was able to find not that cheap chopsticks that you can get from any takeout place, but I think I went to World of, uh, what's that store called? Uh, I, I forget, there's some World store. I found most of the rice bowls I needed and found some heavy uh, chopsticks that I think the diameter and all that were appropriate for what I was doing. I did not realize the this would be offensive to uh, to to people. I never knew. I guess you live and learn. I don't doubt their um, their experience and 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 their the validity validity of what they're saying. Wonder if everybody in that culture feels the same way. Uh, there might be people that are completely apathetic, just I don't know whatever. Do what you want. Yeah, I, I'm I'm not sure. I mean it. it it, like she said, it's up to myself to, to do more research and, 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 uh, and see, you know, moving forward, what would I use if I play this piece again, or any piece that I think chopsticks would be appropriate. Of course, and you are right. Um, sorry, I'll, I'll go around the room still, but um, there were a lot of people um, who come from various countries in Asia who came up and said, um, I totally respect what's going on, but actually um, this is not disrespectful in my culture at all. So there were some people, uh, from what I understood, um, Alice herself is Asian American, Chinese American. Um, but there were other Chinese um, folks who came up and said, actually, I don't find this to be offensive at all. And here is, you know, they of course, supported their claims with YouTube videos of people making constructions of chopsticks or using them in music and so on to prove their point. But then there were others. There was a, a person from Japan who then um, explained why it is offensive. That was the one thing that struck me personally um, when, I, when I read this is it's not at all an attempt to invalidate someone's experience, but it's really helpful to hear exactly what is the symbolic significance of the chopsticks in order to know not to use them. So um, basically what I found, a person said, um, I'm from Japan and in my culture, no matter, doesn't matter if some people said it's okay, it's not okay for my family and friends and my ancestors, but this is just my point of view and 
point of view of my friends and family, not all Asian point of view. Um, we spend years teaching our children to properly use our chopsticks. We are never to use them for anything but eating, which we shiver when we see people put them in their hair. We stick up chopsticks in the middle of a bowl of rice to offer to the deceased. We use them to pick up the remains of our cremated family bones to pass them on to the urn. We have other sacred traditions using chopsticks and rice, and we also believe everything is sacred and to be treated with respect, which obviously Japanese culture is very, very traditional. And too bad the culture has been washed away by whiteness over the years and colonization. But um, she basically says, that is not to say that sometimes the disposable chopsticks may be used for crafts. She has seen it. But also they said, several people said that what is sort of, I guess, more universally inappropriate is to separate the chopsticks. That's seen as, as some people said it's a social faux pas. Others say that it's absolutely unacceptable. But separating chopsticks, which is what needs to happen in order for you to use them as drumsticks, is, is unacceptable. So there were people who jumped in on the discussion, which I really appreciated, obviously. Yes, we all do our Googling, do your own research. But it is also really helpful to, in that discussion, to put in some actual information instead of just being like, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, you go educate yourself. No, you go educate yourself. And then nobody says anything. So, yeah. Um, who wants to go next, Carla? Well, it's, it's certainly helpful to know why. But my first thought as I was reading through some of this, one, like Pedro, I wasn't aware of it. You know, I, I never would have thought, uh, you know, I never would have done it if I knew it was offensive and I, there would never have been any like ill will towards anyone in, in doing that. So I was surprised. But my other thought was like, well, it's not, a you know, it's, it's, it's easy enough to not do it. And I don't really necessarily need to understand why. I, I do appreciate reading the anecdotes of people that were sharing, here are some of the reasons why it would be offensive for me and my family um, and my background and my culture. Um, but yeah, for me, it's it's an, an easy switch. And I had to think about, I had to pause and think like, have I ever done this? And then finally it came to me, it was um, Songs 1 through 9 by Stuart Sunder Smith. He calls for chopsticks. I think it's chopsticks played only in the frying pan. Yeah. Um, but you know, that, that whole piece is appropriating all kinds of found objects, you know, glass jars and a frying pan and, uh, you know, like just found objects. So it, uh, even like little, little symbols made out of jar lids. Um, so then it, it kind of brought up another question in my mind. If and when I, I do that piece again, will I use something else and will it matter? Does it matter that that no, Stuart Center Smith was so specific that he asked for a red maraca and a yellow yarn mallet. Um, does it matter? But for me, as especially as an educator, it's kind of a no-brainer. Like, no, that's there's always a substitute. And knowing that it could be offensive to a student or, you know, somebody in the audience or anyone that that sees it, like, that's fine. But I didn't know, so it's it's good on the one hand to to be exposed to things and to like great to know to understand. Of course. And I think that the substitutions are certainly quite easy, um, especially sound-wise, just little dowels. That's super easy. But, you know, there's a, um, there are so many other things that we don't know. And it's great that we're expanding our worldview. Obviously, that's what the Internet is for. It's good. But the other thing that I learned today, for example, and this is going to be hard for our listeners, but, you know, in South Africa, for example, it's offensive. It's, it's really bad. It's a bad omen to show that someone is tall by pointing your palm downward and placing uh, to like evaluate to show where their height is you have to bunch up your fingers and point upwards because they think that if you point your palm downward 
um, you're cutting someone off. You are going to stifle their growth. So should we then say that, I don't know, Michael Jackson's, what is that? What, what is the song? Come on, really? someone help. Thriller hands are like unacceptable and everyone in South Africa is going like, oh my God, he's like, just, you know, that, that's totally not okay. Um, and then, you know, we, we talk about chopsticks, but then we use animal skin for a lot of our instruments, which is actual murder. But it's starting to feel uh, almost crazy. Like every day you wake up and you find out another thing that you've been doing wrong your entire life and that's really important to some other people um which is totally fine but it's sort of it, it it's really reshaping our world very much yeah and, i mean, i'll say that i i hesitated to comment on this at all because it's like i'm a white guy <laughs> it's not really my place um but like i i think and and please allow me to elaborate before i because i'm going to say something that sounds ridiculous but like the initial instinct that every white person has is like if I went to China and saw him playing with spoons, I wouldn't be offended. <laughs> and it's like, okay, yes. But when I heard the, the actual explanation of how it's like a, a spiritual symbolism of like the chopsticks and the rice bowl being passed on as a, like a gift to an ancestor, it's like, okay, yeah, like I could see like how, like if you went to an Asian country and they were burning a Bible for a piece of music, a lot of European descendants would be offended by that. Um, so I can certainly understand the um, conflict, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, but it, it brought up two points to me. One, I do think there's a difference between haphazardly handing out whatever chopsticks you have to an elementary music class. They're going to get lost. They're going to get beaten up, et cetera, versus using them in an, like an honorific way, like in a Lou Harrison piece, for example, where Lou Harrison was clearly very influenced by Asian culture and was embracing it. Um, and uh, just guessing that Lou Harrison probably encountered Asian people in San Francisco, and I'm sure there was some sort of cultural exchange there. I'm not an expert on the subject, so I can't say for sure. But I, I, I do think they should not be used in the elementary classroom budget option context. But I'm, I'm still questioning the Stuart Saunders Smith or the Lou Harrison context or the John Cage context. Because, I mean, Lou Harrison, you also use rice bowls, and that's the other half of this equation. It's like, I, I don't know, that's, it's, it's harder to overcome that, and there's, there's always a substitute, but a rice bowl is a pretty specific sound, and if you get another type of bowl made out of clay that's in that shape and size, it's going to sound similar. It's, it's still a rice bowl, you're just not calling, that, calling it that. So, I don't know, but it also, like, an even broader context brought up this idea of, like, we always talk about cultural appropriation and the the sort of white colonial profiting off of minorities, that sort of thing. Or I shouldn't use the word minorities, but uh, indigenous peoples, I guess, uh, non-Westerners, whatever you want to call it. But then it's like, so should we not perform Debussy anymore? Because he was like kind of ripping stuff off of Gamelon a lot and he didn't have their permission. And it was, he was not working with Indonesian artists to create gamelon scales for his music so i don't know is the, the think, um, long story short but it like Cassini said i mean it, it like you start to step into this minefield of ethics and it's like i think that if you are respectful of other cultures and you're careful about the way you present things things are not just thrown in bags and thrown on the floor and stepped on 
maybe there's some room for discussion. But again, it's like, you know, I, I hesitate to say anything because it's not really my place to as a, you know, white guy. <laughs> I think it's the word appropriation versus appreciation. Yeah. Like, I feel like a lot of these examples we're citing, it's an appreciation of culture. And I don't know, like, I, I feel like I know not just Asian friends, but friends from a lot of traditions who they're they're glad to see these traditions get diluted and be free from them and see, you know, these are just individuals I'm talking about, um, certainly not speaking for any group at large, but they feel oppressed by their traditions. They want to get away from their traditions. Like I'll just use, use an example very close to home, like people who are glad to see Christmas become a casual thing, you know, and become kind of like permeate all over the place and cross, uh, you know, cross different religions and different cultures. Like nobody owns culture. You know, and appropriation is another word I get seen just like misused a lot. Like they're, it's like a marginalized group. Someone's profiting from it. Like I forget the sunglasses designer, but this is a famous case. Starts using tribal tattoos, uh, you know, symbols on the glasses and makes a huge amount of money from it. Uh, n- another one like Marlon Brando back in, gosh, 19, oh, geez, maybe a long time ago 60s or something he um he 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 won some um um award golden globe i guess right and uh, or oscar and he he had this native american woman come take it on his behalf and give this speech about cultural appropriation and how in especially old western movies they Native Americans as these, you know, barbaric tribal people who attack, 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 etc. And then, of course, there's like this huge amount of money being made out of out of this. And it further stigmatizes that particularly marginalized group of people. That's cultural appropriation. Like like that is is where this word really comes from. And I'm not saying like it's bad to voice your concern about it. But like, I, I just think I hope we be careful like we're losing an important word that is like a real thing (laughs) you know like and it is a very different much bigger bigger thing and i just see this happening a lot with a lot of these social issues people take a word that meant something really specific and really big and heavy in like the 60s and we use it today to mean these much more minor things Um, And again, I'm not saying that this person's feelings are minor or not to be considered. And I think, great. Yeah. Shout that out as loud as you can. I think that's cool that we we now know, hey, some people are bothered by this. And then we know, hey, other people are not bothered by this. And then, like I just said, hey, and some people are like actually really glad to be free from what they consider these really like oppressive um, uh, values and traditions. So anyway, yeah. Yeah, I think um, what comes as a, as a, I guess, a decision that everyone then has to make on their own is, okay, yes, you're aware that some people are, are pro and against and in between, but what do you do with this? Do you decide that exactly what Alice Toy used as a, uh, as sort of a, an argument uh, when she spoke publicly with uh, some of the other Asian folks who expressed their opinion that didn't align with hers, um, she said, isn't it enough if one person is offended? Do I have to, you know, be able to say, well, you know, the whole of China finds this to be very offensive or the entire continent um, finds this to be very offensive? Or is it enough that it's offensive to only 
a limited amount of people, you know, a, a, I mean, you just a have to decide, like offending is not illegal. Like, again, nobody owns culture. It's like a personal decision, you know, like, yeah, is it going to bother you that one person is, is one person enough, you know, to you? And, and I think the reasons matter, like if it's ceremonial and traditional reasons, that's a bigger deal than cause you'll find people offended at anything out there. I mean, someone is offended by anything you do. At least one person is. But I think these are better reasons. You know, these are these are pretty legitimate reasons to be offended. You know, it's a ceremonial usage of these chopsticks and, and things, you know. Of course. Um, it's a really interesting topic. So uh, if uh, you folks somehow managed to miss it, it's literally all over Facebook and you can go check it out. There's some very, very serious conversations going on there. But uh, it's very good that it's it's brought up and I, I definitely will be reconsidering um, my own decisions when picking out sounds and maybe I'll just go and uh, make a lot of dowels. I don't know. Get I finally need to get into a wood shop or something. <laughs> I, I, there's this pho place here in town, like some Vietnamese soup place, yeah. soup kitchen, and it's just so good. And I go there all the time. Before COVID, I went there all the time. And I was bringing students there. And I like using chopsticks to eat what I eat there. And I, I also do worry, like, outrage like this. You know, like, okay, so now, like, like do I need to be fearful of supporting an Asian restaurant because I'm going to do something wrong and I'm going to offend someone. And I, I just think there's, there's also a hidden, uh, a hidden problem with, with such passionate outrage like this. Like, am I going to do something wrong? Like, am I going to put the chopsticks down? It's like, wait, I just wanted to go support this restaurant because they're always so happy to see me. They like know me. They're like, Hey, it's that dude who always brings his students in and, and always, we're pushing to try some like new wacky thing. And I mean, the business was really, there were like so few people there and they were so happy to see customers when they started. And now it's, it's doing really well. Um, so I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I, I feel like there's, you know, like, do you want to embrace like where like this culture is being permeated or do you want to freak everybody out? <laughs> you know, like it might, it might do some harm to freak everybody out, you know? Don't stop supporting your favorite Vietnamese restaurant. Don't be afraid well, of offending. I but I won't, of course. But I think some people will be like, "Wait, oh, is this like? Am I doing it? Am I doing it wrong?" You know, like like you go in there. You let's say you don't know how to use chopsticks. You go in there and you like try. Like some people are like, "Oh, cool, you're trying. Thank you for appreciating how this food is consumed." And like someone else is going to go like, "How dare you? Like go in there, white person, not knowing how to do this." how dare you? Like, it's like, dude, what? I, I don't know, man. Like what now I have to run the risk of wondering if they'll think that, like, I don't know. Like I'm for just like, no, don't try it. That's like, I, I feel like more people view it as appreciation than anything else. Well, precisely. I, I, I have an example of something like that. I, I, I witnessed. And, uh, if I remember correctly, I, okay. So it, it was in Miami. We went to, um, uh, if you all remember the the, the sandwich king, yes, uh, sandwich king. <laughs> so I went to sandwich king with with a friend, and uh, he ordered a coffee, and he really wanted to order in Spanish. So again, he's not a Spanish speaking person. So I told him how to do it, and he did it. But the person behind behind the counter said, "Hey, I speak English." Sort of offended about the whole. So I'm like. He, he's just trying. It's okay, you know. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, it, it's an instance in which, you know, as Casey is saying, somebody's going to be offended by uh, whatever, you know, a, a situation like this. Yeah, I, f I feel like it's mm -hmm. you, you sacrifice so many cases of appreciation and opening up to culture out of fear of being uh, offensive. It's like, so yeah, try to order it in Spanish. Great. I feel like, you know, most people would just be glad, like, oh, cool, you're trying, you know, good for you, you know. Yeah, the place this is resting in my mind right now, it's like, okay, in, out of fear of appropriation, and again, I don't even think people are using the word appropriation correctly, but out of fear of this new version of appropriation, we're going to lose a ton of appreciation. I, I think the appreciation is far more valuable. You know, yeah. plus it's not the offenders. It, it's not the the the, um, the offenders' um, fault that like chopsticks are everywhere now. Like, you know, I mean, I mean that 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 culture is beyond its original orientation. Just like Christmas is way beyond where it began. You know. Yeah. Another thing that was interesting in that post, there was a, a person from Hong Kong who chimed in and uh, sort of asked this uh, rhetorical question, which was like, um, so if um, you were to use uh, spoons again in, you know, in China, when, when did the money, monkey become sacred? And a person responded to this Hongkongese saying, please, like, there's, there's no reason to chime in on this. You don't know what the situation is like for Asians in America. And then this Hong Kongese responded, am I not Chinese enough to, you know, so it kind of okay. gets more and more heated. And then the question is, okay, who can speak on this even? Is it, is it the Chinese mainland Chinese only? Is it, you know, how can, how come, how come we can't even have a, an honest conversation? I, I guess, basically, that's, that's well, I think, it. Well, I think it's because people are being dishonest. Like you're calling appropriation something that it's not. You know, it's like, dude, that, that, you know, that that's not what it is. And you're speaking, you know, speaking in these overly large generalizations and people are speaking on a, on a topic that you would need to be an expert on. I mean, this is a problem that's like all over the Internet, you know, whether it's politics or or whatever. People comment as if they're experts and they're studied on something. It's like you could probably ask like a real expert to comment on this. You know, but yet the opinions have this passion and this like fury about them. And it's like, dude, we're not we're not all experts on this. You yeah. know, that's frustrating. Like, you can't be an expert on everything. So yeah. stop. So stop like talking like you are. You know. And again, I say this, and I say like I appreciate like knowing this point of view because I didn't know it. You know, I didn't know it, and I've got all sorts of Asian buddies who I've eaten with, and and um, you know, I'm yeah. So it's it's interesting. Yeah. It is. Well, thanks so much for the platform in this episode, Ben. Cool. <laughs> well, let's uh, get back to one one final question for Pedro before we wrap up here. This question comes from Jade Hales. Jade says, is the experience of playing with a ballet orchestra any different than a traditional symphony orchestra? Is the extra work or increased collaboration due to the nature of that group? And uh, having heard Pedro talk about this before, I would actually also like to specifically ask about playing the Nutcracker with the Ballet Orchestra. Well, now, now I'm trying to think what, uh, <laughs> what, uh, uh, what kind of answer I gave before. But um, I mean, in short, no. There's you play the music and the dancers dance. The there's a level of flexibility that the orchestra needs to have, of course. You know it. it Playing the Nutcracker specifically, I remember, um, you know, playing playing some of these numbers. There's always going to be a little bit of a pull at the end because 
in some of these numbers, there's a lot of, there's, there's a jump, some sort of jump at the end. And you need to wait until the dancer ends. And it's not like you can hurry that gravity and then pull the dancer to the, you know, to the floor faster or, or anything like that. So, uh, but other than that, yes, I guess, you know, that the, the artistic director for the, for the dancer, the choreographer, would chime in and said, you know, perhaps let's do it a little faster, a little slower. It's easier for the dancer to do it this way. But, you know, once we get going, it's, it's, it, it, things were very steady. Um, one thing that I might have learned is that a lot of the symphonic repertoire that is played by symphony orchestras that is originally ballet, um, sometimes we play them, we tend to play them a little too fast uh, for dancers. And uh, I heard somebody else saying one time that you can't hurry the dancer, you know, you just have to let the dancer dance. So, um, in an opera, for example, you should be able to hear a singer, so that's different. And the singer has a certain amount of flexibility. So playing an opera orchestra in that sense, is a, I, there's more flexibility needed or more collaboration needed between those two parts. In a ballet orchestra, maybe not so much. I think the most difficult thing was really learning how to play in the pit, depending on where you are placed. Uh, in any given repertoire. I guess that's, yeah, that's what I have to say about my experience in ballet. There's a lot of Nutcracker, yeah. And, you know, I, we used to do more than 30 uh, services. Uh, yeah, a lot of those, which, you know what, it's, it's great music. I mean, the Nutcracker is just such a beautiful piece. You know, I, I, I probably would have, would, would have another 150 reps if I was still in the ballet orchestra. So, <laughs> who knows if... <laughs> It would change my 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 feeling for it, but it's, it's beautiful music nonetheless. There's something about the routine you can get into. I feel the same way with opera. Like you have so many shows, and every night's like the same, but a little different, and it's it just feels live. But also, you know, like okay, I play again in 17 minutes, and you, know, you get you get everything down. Um, Pedro, what's an example of a? Can you think of a piece that we do play in you know symphony orchestra faster than? than ballet can handle? The Rite of Spring. Yeah, I, <laughs> it, it was, I was thinking precisely of Stravinsky uh, once. I was once I say also, another one is the, uh, the Mambo from West Side Story, like the, the super fast way we always play in the suite is not how the Mambo goes. <laughs> well, yeah, Mambo in general is not that fast if you go to like you know an actual i guess an actual traditional mambo so there's that too <laughs> and it, and you know it was it's interesting we're talking about this subject and the, the fact that bernstein wrote a mambo in his in his piece and you know it's an appreciation for the culture right. and, and the context of the subject that he was writing about well, I just had a couple things I was going to add to that. One is that what I was asking specifically. I remember hearing you talk about uh, you were like, yeah, like gravity has to pull the dancer back down to the ground. And like sometimes you just have to wait. Like if they jump higher, you got to wait for them to hit the ground. <laughs> Go on. Like, I guess that's what you're talking about, with a lot of flexibility. But uh, this is this is I'll, I'll be I'm OK with admitting my lack of intelligence here. But 
one thing that that I didn't realize is most of the music that we think of as ballets, like the Nutcracker, we unless you're in a ballet orchestra, we rarely actually play the ballet. Like there there are orchestral suites. So Nutcracker is one. Um, I just had another huge example in my head that's now escaping me. Um, oh, uh, Firebird. Like it's it's rare that people actually perform the Firebird ballet. Usually we do the the suite, which is much shorter. Um, so yeah, it's I'd be curious to like check out some of the repertoire that maybe I know but I don't know if you what I mean. Yeah, one of the big examples of Latin American repertoire we know by Ginastera, uh, Estancia, it's ballet. Say Ginastera again. Well, the, that's always a, a contentious point. <laughs> yes, Ginastera should be right. It, the G in Spanish is pronounced as an English H. Well, yeah, sure, but it was the end of it that I thought sounded sounded different. But but I, I still say Ginastera, but because I always thought that it was, I mean, his family was Italian, but maybe I'm completely wrong. Yeah, okay. No, I I remember hearing that's how he pronounced it. But uh, people look at me funny if I say it like, "Hey, don't you know?" <laughs> right. I just I love I love bringing out Mio in percussion literature class and just letting some students say Milhod for a while, just like <laughs> let, that, let that go on for an hour or so, <laughs> then let them know how to say it. If we remember the the ending of the Pines of Rome on on, on Glockenspiel. It's the first movement of the piece, and uh, it's a piece in A, but it ends on a B. And I might have told a few people that you're supposed to play the A at the end. to play the A. And later, I'm like, hey, you know, I was kidding. <laughs> Not I, supposed I did. I did the same thing with that that extra grace note in Sorcerer's Apprentice. That first little section. You know, like you add in the G grace note, and I, I like I told a friend like, oh yeah, it's a D flat, and like he like practiced it like that for a while. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm just messing with you, man. It's it's. it's... <laughs> but, uh, I mean, another example, um, one of I guess one of the biggest artists in Panama, Ruben Blades. Ruben Blades, Ruben Blades. How do you say it? I mean, his uh, his family comes from the descent West Indies, so it should be Blades, but. He grew up in Panama and, you know, it's makes career uh, with Spanish speaking Spanish music uh, or music in Spanish. So do you say Blades? It, and he says it both ways, you know, depending on, I guess, how he feels. I don't know. So, so Ginastera, Ginastera. Yeah, yeah. Blades. Not Ginastera. I don't know, know Blades. Can That's cool. Cangalosi. <laughs> yeah. Kind of like Ksenija. <laughs> Kasanija Kamaljanovic. <laughs> what What are some of the worst versions you've ever heard, Kasanya? Uh, my first name somehow got pronounced Asanega, which I couldn't recognize oh. at a doctor's office. I was like, that must be me. If it sounds ridiculous, it must be me. So I get up and everyone's like, what is this white, what is this white woman's how parents' problem get, like? How did they get that out of that? I can't think of any version that any reason it would go to that i i don't know i, I really don't know yeah but those are that, that's the worst probably a lot of bad starbucks cups i'm sure yeah <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much everyone for joining us on episode 248 and thank you to pedro for being such a wonderful guest and we will see you on the next one good to see you pedro good to see everybody good to see you bye bye bye